Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at the top elections and campaigns in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Lauren Zensky, author of the Politico Massachusetts Playbook. So first, a huge major thank you to everyone who came to our live event. There were like hundreds of people, literally. It yeah, was amazing. It was, it was great. And thanks to the guests also. We had some great guests that I think were largely responsible for how many people decided to show up. Um, we had Meghna Chakrabarty from WBUR, Gus Bickford from the Mass Dems, and Alex Goldstein, advisor to the Ayanna Presley campaign. All were super fascinating. I was honestly very interested in what they all had to say. And if you are too, it's uh, posted as last week's episode. So go back and take a listen to that. Yeah, it was, it was very excellent. And it was really, really nice to meet so many people who tune into this podcast every week when when we're in the bunker we don't necessarily get to see and interface with the people who are listening and it was really really cool to do that yep, we met some of our twitter friends some of our uh, past trivia winners a little selfie action <laughs> yeah it was fun um also we have a bit of a programming a very sad programming note to it share is. with our listeners here today some some news this is my penultimate episode meaning i have, I have one more next week this is my second to last episode uh i am moving on to greener pastures and literally moving to washington oh, this is so sad i know washington dc not the state that's i couldn't go that far um but it's for a job that i can't quite announce all the details yet but i'm leaving boston and politico and most bittersweetly the horse race. It's very sad news for us to hear this. So we're taking applications for a new horse race host, I guess. Lauren, um, we've told her she's going off to greener pastures, which is what we say to horses just before they get sent to the glue factory. Exactly. Steve so. is having trouble reading from the script through the tears <laughs> in his eyes because he's so devastated. So right. to, to everyone who comes on the podcast ask, after I'm gone, give Steve a consoling pat. Please do. I'm just desperately sad over this. But anyway, we have one, actually two more this week and next week episodes to go. So let's talk Talk about what we're actually doing here today. Yes, we've actually got some great, great, great guests. As always, uh, we're going to first talk about the outcome of the district attorney's races uh, with two veritable DA experts, Jennifer Smith of the Dorchester Reporter and Michael Jonas of Commonwealth Magazine. Then Steve and I break down the Republican primary outcomes and the general election implications. Yeah, there have kind of been some surprising developments there and some interesting developments as far as how the primaries turned out and the influence that that's having on the general election already. So we'll get into all of that. And finally, we have some special guests who also have to host the newest Massachusetts political podcast. We have Jen Nassor, former chair of the Mass GOP, and Jesse Mermel, who was the former communications director for Deval Patrick, also involved in the Ayanna Presley campaign. They're the new hosts of Disagreeing Agreeably. Um, it's, we've gone yeah. through several iterations of that title, trying to remember if it's disagreeably agreeing or agreeing. It's present tense. It's, it's present tense. Okay. It's disagreeing agreeably. Okay, so not thinking the same thing, but doing so in a friendly fashion. Exactly. Okay. As it happens. So that's under the podcast media empire so for those of you who follow the podcast you can find that there as well exactly and we get these pleasant partisans to give us their take on republicans democrats and basically whatever else we can think of so steve shall we dive in yes There were major national storylines coming out of Tuesday night, and some with specifically local interest as well. One of the sets of races we've been following throughout primary season has been the races for district attorney. The reason? These positions have huge influence over the state's criminal justice system. On Tuesday, we saw two reformers win their primaries and a third race that was much closer than many anticipated. Here to break it all down, we have two longtime friends of the horse race, the co-presidents of the Horse Race District Attorney Primaries Correspondents Association, Michael Jonas of Commonwealth Magazine, and Jen Smith of the Dorchester Reporter. Welcome back, guys. Thank you. 
Good to be here. We're happy to have you both. Jen, let's start with you. Rachel Rollins won in Suffolk County. That was not necessarily what was expected. Greg Henning was kind of the front runner here. How did this happen? What what happened? <laughs> well, so I actually talked to Rachel yesterday and asked her to kind of answer that exact same question. And she was, you know, really walking the line of saying that she wasn't necessarily surprised by it, but she knows that everyone else was. Uh, she got 40% of the vote in a five-person race against, again, kind of the heir apparent to the DA's uh, position in Greg Henning, who, yeah, that's Conley, pretty incredible. who Conley himself endorsed and outraised her two to one when it actually came to funding. So what she says basically is that they took a really strategic approach to it. They uh, were in the running for all of the different nominations they could go for, all the awards they could go for on the national level, on the local level. She made sure that she had alliances with some of the city councilors that were in districts that were t- particularly important to her. For instance, Lydia Edwards and Kim Janey, of course, both turned over kind of their districts to her and was, were really out there as well. So as far as she's concerned, it was mostly a numbers game, but even she was surprised by the margins. And I think the interesting thing sort of taking a step back is that this was one where you had a reformer win over a more, I guess, traditional candidate, you know, yet a candidate in Greg Henning, who had a lot more sort of institutional support, more police support, the outgoing DA. Um, but Mike, I wonder if you could take us out to the Berkshires, because this is another one where you had an incumbent who was in this case, put put in his job by his predecessor, and I think expected by many people to win, but you had another reformer win out there. Any sense of whether it was sort of the shadiness surrounding how Cacaviello came into office that was more responsible, or was it Andrea Harrington, the, the eventual winner? Was it sort of her reformer positions? I mean, my, I, the sense I have is that it is more the latter that, uh, I mean, you alluded to these this kind of questionable circumstance of how he how he was sort of installed in the office basically by the former DA and Governor Baker. But I think really what happened there was that this was just part of a secular wave that we saw across the state that certainly, you know, the, the Suffolk race was kind of the marquee, you know, example of. Uh, but to an extent, we saw it in the Middlesex County race as well, that there really does seem to have suddenly been an interest in these races among voters and a strong leaning toward uh, reformers and change. And in this case, Andrea Harrington, who the knock on her was that she really hadn't worked as a prosecutor. Uh, there were some debates where she got uh, kind of roughed up a little for her lack of kind of detailed knowledge of, of some of the processes in the office. There was sort of this, you know, a little bit in the weeds argument about which cases go to superior court versus district court. And in, in some other races, you might think, you know, she would look like kind of, you know, a novice out of her league and it would be disqualifying. But I think voters look beyond that because they feel like, you know, she can learn that stuff. What we're really drawn to is, is this message she's sending of taking a really different approach to criminal justice matters in the county. And the other thing you have to remember is Berkshire County has been known as kind of, you know, a little bit of a kind of a heavy blue bastion in the state. So there's already kind of a liberal leaning there. And, and, and uh, so they were they were kind of, you know, maybe ripe for, for a candidacy like this. Yeah. yeah, Berkshire County is kind of behind the tofu curtain, exactly. as, as Rich Parr, friend of the podcast, would say. I would note as well um, that one of the differences between the races was just the size of the field as well. So, for instance, in the Suffolk DA's race, you had three candidates that really were kind of holding those progressive laurels going in. So you had, obviously, State Rep. Evandro Carvalho, who was a huge champion of the criminal justice bill and a former prosecutor as well. You had Rachel Rawlings, obviously, who had been um, a prosecutor on the federal level but had also kind of been on both sides of it and then was legal counsel for Mass 
support. And then you also had Shannon McAuliffe, who in some ways was more the Harrington mold, where she, uh, you know, did not have prosecutorial experience, but she was more on the defense side of it. So it is really striking that given all of these options, it didn't end up splitting either the votes of color or the progressive votes. And both of those things were really uh, notes of concern going in. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why the more traditional candidates were expected to win in some ways, because there was this sort of group of reformers much larger in the case of Suffolk and just the two of them in the case of of Berkshire. But I want to talk a bit about the policy differences that they may actually bring about, because Rachel Rollins put out what I think is becoming a pretty interesting list, perhaps controversial list, of 15 nonviolent crimes where she's calling it her decline to prosecute list. And out West, Harrington wanted a platform that called for more treatment, more diversion programs for offenders, sort of along the similar lines. So I wonder if you'd each talk a little bit about how we could perhaps expect the criminal justice system to change and whether or not these elections could be seen as part of the larger criminal justice reform moment we're in, or if it was just local factors sort of driving these for separate reasons. So I did actually talk to Rachel about that and the blowback that she's gotten based on this, again, uh, this list of 15 uh, decline to prosecute items. Actually, just give us a sense of what that is, because I think I sped through that without specifying what a decline to prosecute list actually is. So this is basically a list of 15 things like uh, larceny under $250, Um, uh, breaking and entering if it's into a vacant building, for instance, since it's for purposes of shelter, and uh, resisting arrest in a few different cases. So there are a few different instances that we're used to kind of conceptually them being crimes and being prosecuted um, as such. But what Rachel is saying is that it would not be the default position of the district attorney's office to automatically try and bring criminal charges against people, not that they can ever be brought to criminal charges, but that the district attorney uh, the ADAs, rather, would have to make a more compelling case for why they warranted prosecution in this way. And uh, one thing that she pointed out, which was kind of funny to me, was she thinks that a lot of the blowback that she got was in part a good thing because it meant that she had put these commitments down on paper. She was giving people actual policies that they could then voice opinions on. She had a very detailed policy platform. And the fact that these conversations are happening now with law enforcement, for instance, means that even if the policy changes later, and she does really want to subscribe to the spirit of it, saying don't focus as much on petty crimes, we already have a violent crime problem, Um, but that the version that ultimately makes it into her her office's policy might not look the same, but it should certainly be influenced by it. Spoken like a true elected official. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) How about out in Berkshire, Michael? Because Andrea Harrington, the Article from Mass Live listed a whole bunch of different things that she was uh, looking at, like treatment beds rather than jail cells for nonviolent drug users, ending cash bail for low-level offenders. She was pretty critical of disproportionate prosecution of juvenile minorities. How could we look for things to change out there? I mean, I think in in, in sort of the same way that Jen has described for Suffolk. Uh, Again, I do think this is not, you know, we we always like to say all politics is local. Uh, You know, obviously it is, but it's really influenced by broader by broader uh, waves, and I think this is this is really part of it. So I think you know Berkshire County, which again you have to the scale of things is just dramatically different. I mean the number of cases that come through the DA's office, number of people incarcerated in their house of correction is just a fraction of what we see in Suffolk. So you know it, it may be a little harder to sort of sort of sense you know or measure the changes in the same way, but I think it's all in the same spirit really. I also want to talk about the other kind of surprise result was the Middlesex district attorney's race. Michael, talk about that. Sure. So this is the one of the three uh, competitive primaries in which we didn't see sort of the 
the change agent prevail. But and I know we always say what close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades and all that stuff. Certainly that's true in elections. There's a winner and there's a loser. So the winner was Marion Ryan, the incumbent DA. But Donna Patalano, her challenger, came, I think, like far closer than any of us had expected. It was roughly 53 uh, percent for Ryan to 47 for Patalano, which is an astounding achievement for Patalano for a couple of reasons. One, it's the biggest county by far. The challenge for an incumbent, you know, to campaign and raise money to get a campaign out across that area is really huge. And also, Ryan had kind of positioned herself as somewhat of a progressive exception to the state's reigning DAs. So it made the challenge for Patalano to distinguish herself that much greater. But I think you'd have to say she really did succeed. And I spoke with her actually after the race, and she you know, she pointed to a few things which were people were really receptive to the reform message and she was able to sort of convince people that there was sort of a meaningful difference between herself and Ryan. One of the things she pointed out that is interesting and kind of ties into some of the other races, non-DA races like the Ayanna Presley race and others is she said she had a really strong field operation. She had about 200 people out knocking doors. She said Ryan didn't have nearly that kind of a grassroots operation going and, and Patalano thinks that that made a difference too. But but again, she came a lot closer than people think. And I think that although it's different than the other two races, you could almost lump that race in with the others as, as a contest showing the real appetite for change across the state. I, I mean, that change itself is is interesting when you look at the similarities in uh, platforms between all of these progressive candidates. So, for instance, even though Rawlings got blowback on the decline to prosecute list, she was also proposing things that were very much in line with the other progressive uh, candidates. For instance, you know, um, eliminating cash bail systems, uh, re- uh, eliminating mandatory minimums. So I think if we're looking at what kind of impact this has on district attorney's offices across the Commonwealth in general, it does indicate that there might be more of an appetite than previously thought for what used to be considered pretty dramatic progressive reforms. Yeah, and I I think it sort of echoes what we've seen in polling that we've done over the last number of years on criminal justice, that there has been this appetite for shaking things up, you Mm -hmm. know, for looking at different ways of doing things, for looking at ways to reduce incarceration and the, you know, sort of belief that, you know, spending time in prison is actually harmful and makes you more likely to reoffend. All these things have shown up many times in the polling. So it was just sort of fascinating to see them also show up at the ballot box. Yeah, and just that that move again um, from the prevailing idea that the best way to deal with crime is always to incarcerate. I think that's that's been a really interesting thing to see people kind of reject on this scale. All right. Well, Michael Jonas of Commonwealth Magazine, Jen Smith of the Dorchester Reporter. Thank you for being here. Uh, of course. Thank you. we didn't delve into much at last week's post-primary live event was the outcome of the Republican primaries here in Massachusetts. One of the key surprises came in turnout for Governor Charlie Baker's far right and Trump-supporting opponent Scott Lively, who captured a surprising 36% support from Republican primary voters, which constituted nearly 100,000 votes. Steve, you've been following all of this very closely. What have you been seeing and where is this taking us? Yes, there's a couple interesting things about this that I saw and then I want to sort of hear what people have been saying to you as well. To start, I think it was kind of a surprise. You know, Lively's performance surprised people who are watching earlier on in the process, but it is part of a trend. You know, this is something where we've seen over and over again that there has been this sort of vein of discontent with Charlie Baker on the right side of the Mass GOP. That was very much in evidence last Tuesday. 
the, I actually started hearing about the week before that, based on their own sort of internal analysis and polling, that the mass GOP was starting to expect this, that they were sort of starting to, you know, set expectations that Lively could actually beat the percentage that people thought that he might get. But I guess it's just that this isn't the first time it's happened. You know, there was 30 percent for Mark Fisher in 2014 when Governor Baker first ran in a primary. Mark Fisher was not in the same vein as Scott Lively, although he was much more conservative. Yeah, he was he was kind of a central Massachusetts deeply, deeply conservative. Yeah, he was sort of a Tea Party, yeah. you know, which is a traditional Tea Party, or which I guess is now a thing since the Tea Party's been around for long enough, where Scott Lively, I think, is much different than that. And, you know, go listen to some of the interviews that, that Meghna did with him on WBUR if you want to get a better sense of all the ways that he's very different. Yeah, I think it's fair to call him a fringe candidate who also happens to support Trump. See, I think I think it is in a way, but at the same time, 36% of the vote is not the fringe of the Republican Party. You know, that's a big part of the Republican Party. Uh, you know, the question is open, I think, and we'll get into this with some of our guests that we're having having next as to why people voted for Scott Lively. Was it agreement with his positions? Was it, you know, that they were just trying to send Charlie Baker a message? But I think it's a mistake to, to call him a fringe candidate when he got that large of a percent of the vote. That's a really good point. Kind of continuing from... Scott Lively's surprise performance of how he did so well at the state Republican convention where he captured 28% of support. And it was funny, actually, in a scrum at the state party convention this spring, reporters were asking Charlie Baker's people, Scott Lively got almost a third of the Republican primary vote. How does that make you feel? And and Team Baker basically said, we're minimizing it. And they're like, no, 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 this was a quarter, you know, this was about a quarter of, you know, Republican primary voters or, you know, the fact that Scott Lively exceeded that state party performance in the actual primary itself was shocking to me. The spin that was kind of happening directly after the convention this spring was that the the Scott Lively support was a blip, that it was pushback against Governor Baker for not backing Donald Trump and that, you know, this was this was just kind of a symptom of that of that. And there was going to be no way that Scott Lively was going to do as well in the primary. Lo and behold, Scott Lively overperforms that and receives even more support. I I still believe, and a lot of people that I've spoken to also kind of continue this narrative of Scott Lively's success was tied to his trying to tie himself to Trump supporters here in Massachusetts, of which there were more than a million people who cast a ballot in support for Donald Trump in 2016. Clearly, those were the same people that turned out in the primary. Yeah, I think that's another sort of key element of Scott Lively's performance. I guess in calling him, you know, not a fringe candidate, I would just say that more than the fringe voted for him. You know, some of his views are quite far out of the mainstream. But it was notable in his speech at the Mass GOP convention how closely he tied himself to Donald Trump. And that actually brings us to the other interesting result of of last Tuesday, which was in the Senate race. Um, State Representative Jeff Deal won the Republican nomination there by quite a wide margin, actually. That's interesting and very very closely tied to what we were just talking about, I think, because he was the Trump campaign co-chair. So to do that well, I think, just reminds us that, you know, this is this was a good state for Trump. This is not a – when it comes to Republicans in Massachusetts, this is a good state for Trump. Uh, yeah, I, I want to kind of highlight this thing in our notes that, Steve, you actually have highlighted and bolded and underlined, which uh, emphasizes what – I think your take on the outcome of this primary actually is, which, Steve, can you read the thing that is bolded? Yeah, I said that the mass GOP is significantly Trump's GOP. There's 
there's different elements in it. You know, there are certainly are a wide vein of Charlie Baker supporters as well. We can't forget that he actually did win the primary. You know, he got almost two thirds of the vote, but he's a super popular incumbent governor. So to lose a third of the vote, I think, is quite interesting. And when you sort of tie that together with how well Jeff Deal did, with how well Donald Trump did here, I think we just need to you know, sort of put a stake in the ground here and say there that this is significantly Trump's GOP here in Massachusetts as well. I do just want to broaden the lens a little bit just for context. The the state Republican Party and Republican primary voters is a very different electorate and a sliver of the electorate as a whole when we talk about the overall voters here in Massachusetts. Only 11% of registered voters here in the Commonwealth are registered Republicans. The vast majority of voters, roughly 60%, are unenrolled. And so when we talk about the Mass GOP and we talk about registered Republicans here in Massachusetts, yes, they're deeply red, but it's not like it's 50% of the electorate. It's a much smaller pocket. And so it's almost like our sample size is smaller and it just makes everything a little bit more concentrated. I guess I view it similarly, but somewhat slightly differently in this sense that unenrolled voters voting in the Republican primary, I was sort of lumping together in there. And they're actually the majority in Republican primaries. So I'd actually say that the group that I'm describing as being significantly Trump's GOP includes a number of a large slice of the unenrolled voters. It's still the it's still a relatively small minority, but it's it's larger than I think just the number who are who are registered as Republicans. But I want to take it forward to this week when the question was asked whether Charlie Baker would endorse Jeff Deal again, the tr the Trump campaign co-chair. So you know where was he going to be in the Senate race? He famously blanked his ballot in 2016 when Trump was actually on the ballot versus Hillary Clinton. Um, but the question was asked, and it, his response has caused a lot of reaction. So Lauren, take us through what's going on. Yeah, Baker essentially said that he supports the entire Republican ticket, including the Senate nominee, who is Jeff Deal. Deal's candidacy and kind of who he is and what he represents has always kind of represented this awkward spot for Charlie Baker because of Deal's proximity to the Trump administration. But Baker knows that as a Republican and as the kind of de facto head of the state Republican Party, he he has to be with Deal, and it's gonna it's gonna cause more of a headache to not support his own party's nominee for the Senate. Of course, that does obviously put Charlie Baker in a slightly awkward spot because it does highlight the fact that Baker did not support Trump and does not support Trump for all intents and purposes, whereas Jeff Deal does. I don't think that this means that President Trump is going to come to Massachusetts and support Jeff Deal and that will make things really awkward for Charlie Baker. Like President Trump has a lot bigger fish to fry and a lot more states that he needs to travel to to make sure that incumbent Republicans keep their positions and that the House and Senate don't completely, you know, aren't completely overtaken by this blue wave. So, again, don't hold your breath for for President Trump to show up in Massachusetts. But again, it, it highlights this difference. I will kind of go back to the fact that Baker is not making it a secret that he is trying to be bipartisan. You know, this isn't Charlie Baker awkwardly attempting to be a Republican, but also not being a Republican. Like his campaign ads literally spell out that he is a very bipartisan governor and he's kind of trying to lean into this middle that in a general election we know he can do because he doesn't have to, you know, he doesn't have to capture only the support of Republicans or only Republicans who are going to vote in a primary or unenrolled Republicans. Um, it's 
it's a different path to victory, and he knows that, and so we're seeing this more moderate governor. Yeah, and I think that's the, that sort of highlights the interesting question, which is, you know, how do voters react to this? Do voters even react to it? You know, we've heard what we've heard mostly so far is either campaign people or media people talking about this. What we don't really know is a do voters know, a will voters be will voters know, will they care, you know, those kinds of things. Um, we'll start to get a sense of that going forward. And that sort of brings us to the much larger question, which is, does Jay Gonzalez catch any wind from this? Are there sort of forces that could come together to help him? You know, the polling that we've done, which was much much earlier in the year. We're going to make a practice of not taking too much from polling that was done a long time ago. Those of you who are doing that, you know who you are. Stop doing it. <laughs> that's. Um, like, I think that's like the sternest scolding you've ever delivered on air, Steve. Yeah, I'm, from, I'm from the Midwest, so I tend to be reserved. But I'm just going to say the polling was from a long time ago. But the question is, the question in terms of the governor's race is, how does it shape up now that Jay Gonzalez is the nominee? There's been a long time. Uh, there's been a lot of campaigning. We've actually had a primary. Um, so the question really – the question now is, you know, Charlie Baker is very popular. He has been very popular. Could this or could other things shift to Gonzalez's favor in time for Election Day? And this is one of the questions we'll pose to our next guests who are also hosts of a brand new Hashtag Mopoly podcast, disagreeing agreeably with Jen Nassor and Jesse Mermel who join us in the Horse Race Bunker today. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, guys. Thank Thank you. So you're both longtime campaign and Massachusetts political veterans. Jen, you're a friend of the pod. You've been on before, former chair of the Mass GOP, and as we always give people new titles, Viceroy of Republican Campaign Operations. Jesse. Do we have to genuflect? Ooh, I like that. <laughs> yes. yes, we should. Yes. Yes. Okay. I'll go home and tell my kids that one. <laughs> And Jesse, you're a Democratic insider and former communications director for Governor Deval Patrick. So before we get started, give us the quick 30-second elevator pitch on what your new podcast will be about. Well, I mean, the short version is that Jen and I have met basically doing this on a bunch of different shows, though sadly this is our first time together on your show, um, and we found, much to our dismay, that we actually like each other. Um, and we felt like, while certainly there are moments in this moment in time where you can't always disagree agreeably, and it is in fact not appropriate to be agreeable. We also thought there was something to add to the conversation about the fact that we disagree on basically everything, but still want to talk about each other's dogs at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think in this world, in this amazing, you know, crazy world that we live in, um, where everything is so divisive based on your political persuasion, and, you know, we see each other as women and as contemporaries and, you know, we have things in common outside of politics that make us like each other, but our politics are completely opposite of each other. You're wrong about everything. (laughs) No, you're wrong about everything. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So I want to first out myself as basically your podcast number one fan. So big fan. Thank you. Of course. You know, we're only a few days in, so I don't know if the competition (laughs) is that stiff, but we appreciate it. You're you're probably in a you know, group of one or two. Uh, my listen, mom, I, I was going to say my mom really liked it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But but I think what, what makes your podcast so unique, it, unique and kind of one of the reasons why Steve and I wanted to kind of highlight what you guys are doing is that I think it's really rare to hear a political podcast, especially one that's wonky and about Massachusetts politics that is genuine and also has a sense of humor about it and is kind of serious and also doesn't take itself too seriously in a really good way. So 
I'm I'm just blowing smoke, whatever. But I, you guys are fantastic. Anyway, let's get into actually talking about politics and actually talking about hashtag Matt Polly. And I want to kind of delve into something that we didn't talk about on the live event, which was kind of the results of the Republican primary. And Jen, obviously, as our resident Republican, we are so happy to have you weigh in on this. First, let's talk about Baker and Trump and kind of Scott Lively as the proxy for Donald Trump. Should Charlie Baker be worried about the Trump-supporting Scott Lively voters that turned out kind of in droves in support of him on primary day? No. Short answer, no. Um, And the reason is this. You know, Governor Baker is governing the entire Commonwealth, not just the Republican Party. The people who voted for Scott Lively were voting, sending the governor a message saying, we want you to agree with with the president. Okay, here's the funny thing. Those people are not voting for Jay Gonzalez, right? So they're going to come out. They're going to they're going to vote for Charlie. They just needed to give him a little kick in the rear end and say, "We're not, you know, just because you are the most popular governor in the nation doesn't mean that we're going to give you a free pass on everything." And here's a little message to you. It wasn't enough to really kick him in the teeth. It was just a little you know, like I said, a little kick in the tush to say we want you to come on our side a little bit more and agree with the president. So I I disagree in that I do think there's a chance there'll be some political implications this fall. To me, the much bigger question is what does it mean for this nice, safe little bubble we all like to think we live in here in Massachusetts that nearly 100,000 of our neighbors voted for someone who so actively and visibly spews hate Um, which I think is possibly the nicest way you could describe um, what Scott Lively puts out there. And so gubernatorial election this November aside, I think we all need to really take a moment and step back and think about what that means for our our commonwealth in the sense that we, you know, technically are all in this together. Um, And we have 100,000 folks in Massachusetts who, for whatever reason, are picking up what Scott Lively is putting down. And I like to think that regardless of party, for pretty much everyone, that is is a turnoff and a problem. Yeah, but, you know, at the end of the day, I look at that and I say, well, you know, I mean, it's almost the same thing for me as people who are voting for Elizabeth Warren, right? Oh, because totally, no, on no, the, no, no, uh, no. totally on the fringe. Well, because you don't agree with the president's politics, I, and I don't, I don't like the president as a person. So I look at Elizabeth Warren. I don't agree with her politics at all. And I look at her voters kind of the same way. But here's, here's the thing. I just want people to vote. I don't care who you're voting for. I just want you to get out there and vote. Because at the end of the day, 80% of Massachusetts voters did actually not come out and vote on, on primary day. And so I'm happy for those people to be at least giving their voices out there. Yeah, listen, no question, turnout, turnout, turnout. I want everyone to come out no matter who they're voting for. But to equate Scott Lively with Elizabeth Warren blows my mind. It's fine that you disagree with Elizabeth Warren's policies, please, by all means. I, I still think we live in a democracy, at least at least for the next few days, maybe. Um, but Scott Lively is, I mean, he's trying to say that people, are, some people are less than other people. I mean, it, there is nothing about Elizabeth Warren that's doing that. Disagree with her approach, disagree with her politics by all means, but they are so far from being the same when it comes to 
looking at human beings through a fair lens. No, I'm saying that they are the same as far as being on opposite, totally polar opposite ends of the spectrum, where Elizabeth Warren to me is off the spectrum on the left and Scott Lively is off the spectrum on the right. I could never see myself voting for either of those two people, but their their voters are come out because they believe in something that they're talking about, whether it's right or wrong. Look, Elizabeth Warren thinks that, you know, just because the government made the roads, business owners didn't build the roads and shouldn't, you know, be able to reap the benefits off their hard work, right? To me, that's insane. That's socialism. So you go from one extreme to the other is all I'm saying. I'm just firing up the Google here. <laughs> Lauren and I yeah. are just going to sit here. So for a while. Elizabeth yeah. Warren got nearly 1.7 million votes in 2012, slightly more than fringe Scott Lively. Yeah, Jesse literally pulled out her phone. I, uh, all of this notwithstanding, I think you guys just absolutely lean so hard into agreeing disagreeably. So, no, well, it's, it's disagreeing agreeably. Disagreeing agreeably. I'm sorry. I, I'm your podcast biggest fan, but I actually can't get this right. So sorry, but like marketing no, problem. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but no, let's let's move on slightly because I feel like you guys can just keep going on this, and you have a whole podcast to do that now. Uh, <laughs> not steal yours. Right. <laughs> exactly. We have a segment to finish. Uh, Steve, what was what was our next question? I've completely lost track. <laughs> yeah, I actually want to talk a little bit about sort of how we should be viewing Trump now that we're moving into the general election because some of what we heard from Alex Goldstein at the live event and what we've heard in some of the press coverage since is that, you know, the Presley campaign, which, Jesse, you were very much involved in, really wasn't about Donald Trump in a lot of ways. I mean, both of them were very strongly anti-Trump. And a lot of what Alex Goldstein says is there has to be, you know, that may be sort of the cost of admission, but there has to be something else. There has to be a hopeful vision. There has to be something in addition to Trump. So what should we expect from Democrats this fall in Massachusetts? Is it just going to be an anti-Trump sort of screed, long screed, or will there be some sort of specific set of policies that they come around? Yeah, well, first let me clarify that my role with Ayanna's uh, campaign, I always joke, is unpaid director of candidate mental health and wellness. And so I, I get no credit for her win. It's Ayanna herself and all the folks like Alex and Sarah and Josian and, you know, uh, who really staffed her and, and ran a great race. That said, I think you're absolutely right that Ayanna very intentionally made her campaign not just about opposing Trump, which is, of course, important, but about offering something to change the seventh. And I think all Democrats, regardless of the district you're in, uh, would do well to pick up on that. Now, obviously, the message of what to do for your district is different district by district. What plays in the seventh, which is largely urban and very diverse, might not play in a district in rural Pennsylvania where I grew up. But that doesn't mean you can't take a hold of that fundamental point of going beyond opposing the president. The other thing I think she did that that I would advise all Democrats to do, and, and quite frankly, all Republicans, is to see people who often feel unseen, right? And to not consider those folks who, in air quotes, are good voters as your only voter universe. You know, not just Diana, but folks like Andrew Gillum in Florida and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York have, I think, redefined what we should consider to be a good voter. And all of us would do well to to reassess how we think of that. Yeah, that's a really interesting question and one that obviously has big implications for us in polling. I mean, it's a it's a particularly tough question because the political graveyard is full of candidates who have said that they were going to expand the electorate. And, you know, so I think skepticism historically has been very well justified, but absolutely true that, that, that there's something going on out there that we all need to be aware of. And we've seen some recent and very high profile instances of where this has worked. But anyway, Jesse Mermel and Jen Nassor, host of the new podcast, 
contests disagreeing agreeably. Thank you for being with the horse race. Thanks, Thanks for guys. having us. And last question, just to sneak in under the wire. Remind listeners where, when, and how they can tune into your podcast. Well, they can listen to us bi-weekly. Right. So every here. other week. Every other week. By she weekly, uses yes. fancy words. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm not around my kids, I try. Um, we are every other week. So not this coming Monday the 17th, but Monday the 24th, we will be back on with another podcast. Fabulous. We look forward to hearing it. And thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, thank number you. one fan. Woo! And now let's take a look at a couple things we're watching this week. Lauren, what do you have? Yes, I have the continuation of the MA3, the the congressional race up in the Merrimack Valley to replace Nikki Songas. The recount continues. This election is still not completely over. The primary race is still not over. Yeah, we thought it'd be over by now, but it is not over by yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. I feel bad for all 10 candidates and all of their collective campaign staffers because this still has not finished. So the latest updates, Secretary of State Bill Galvin has ordered a district-wide recount of the ballots to be all to be counted by Monday, September 17th. The big question, will Lori Trahan maintain her roughly 120 ballot lead over Dan Coe, or will Coe pull ahead? This is the battle of the former chiefs of staff, if you will. Um, but the, this primary race, at least hopefully by the time that we return to the podcast next week, will be resolved. Big question that I'm looking at this week is how does the primary results that we saw, how does that relate to the general election? Because what was very interesting to me is that throughout a lot of the year, the thing we've really been noticing is that people didn't even know who the candidates were. They weren't really even following the election. But then we had a pretty surprising bump in turnout. On primary day, we had uh, just a huge number of people turn out in the 7th Congressional District. So the question is, does that continue? Does the passion that we saw in the 7th Congressional District that we saw propel Ayanna Presley to victory, does that continue and does it expand statewide? Because if it does, it, it could just make races that are going on statewide very interesting to watch. Yes, the all-important enthusiasm question. Right. Absolutely. All right, Steve. All right, well, now it's time for your second-to-last ever trivia. Yes, my penultimate trivia. Next week, we'll have to have an excellent question. They're all excellent, Steve. Which actually brings us to a bit of a problem, which is we don't have a trivia question to answer this week because we actually answered it on the recording last week at the live event and did not ask a new question. Exactly. Uh, that question asked, when the governor travels out of state, the LG takes over as acting governor. What about when they are both unavailable? Who takes over that? And the answer was Secretary of State. Indeed. Which was pertinent back then because there was a race for Secretary of State. Exactly, exactly. Although there I is think... now I th too, though. I think my... Other actual question that I want to ask, other than our other trivia question, is where were all the Fig Newtons? I know. We keep asking for baked goods. We keep promising very valuable trivia, horse race yeah. trivia points, and we never get any baked the goods. The live event was the, <laughs> perfect, the perfect opportunity. opportunity. I don't understand. Fig Whatever. Newtons, Toll House Cookies, didn't get anything. Hope, I mean, hopefully there's some for my last episode next week. That's a strong tip to anybody. We'll give you a million extra trivia points. Maybe a billion. Points. I we'll mean, up it. You choose your number. Yeah, a billion. So this week's question is mailer related because we're about to enter just your, your mailboxes are going to fill up with campaign mailers. It's going to happen. So the question is the first U.S. postal zip code was created in Massachusetts. What town did it cover and what was the five digit numerical sequence? I, I, yeah, this was a great question. I came up with it. So it was, <laughs> it's extra it's good. Great. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all the time we have this week. I'm Steve Cazella of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Lauren Dzinski of Politico. Our producer this week is Jameson Johnson. Find us online wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you all for listening.